Welcome to Movie Catch-Up, a podcast where two friends work on reducing their movie backlog. Each episode, we serve up a double-feature discussion of movies we've selected for each other to catch up on. I'm Greg. And I'm Leanne. Beware the one-legged man. Today we're talking about two iconic films starring the fabulous and wonderful Tim Curry, Clue and Muppet Treasure Island. For this episode, we decided to pick an actor that we both love, scour their IMDb page, and try and fill in some of the gaps in their filmography. Tim Curry was an obvious pick, mostly just because he is Tim Curry, and basically any movie you pick up his IMDb page, even if it's bad, which some of them are, it's at least going to be entertaining due to his presence. In your hands, you each have a lethal weapon. If you denounce me to the police, you will also be exposed and humiliated. I'll see to that in court. But if one of you kills Wadsworth now, no one but the seven of us will ever know. He has the key to the front door, which he said would only be opened over his dead body. <laughs> I suggest we take him up on that offer. The only way to avoid finding yourselves on the front pages is for one of you to kill Wadsworth. Now. So for my movie, I've gone with Clue. This is the 1985 cult classic directed and written by Jonathan Lynn with also John Landis on the script. So Jonathan Lynn, this was his directorial debut. He'd only done some TV before this and was actually picked by John Landis to direct after Landis had to step out to film Spies Like Us instead. But after this, Lynn went on to direct some standouts such as My Cousin Vinny, Sergeant Bilko, which is a Steve Martin movie. I always saw at Roger's video where he's in like the red coat, but I never saw it. And The Whole Nine Yards. He has a lot more credits, actually, in acting and writing, largely in television. And then Landis, obviously, who helped on the script, is quite famous, uh, having done things such as The Blues Brothers, An American Werewolf in London, The Thriller music video, Coming to America, and quite a few others. He has quite the extensive page of credits. This movie stars such a cast that I just I basically have to list all of them because they're all so great, and this is such an ensemble movie. So you've got the entire cast of Clue, each playing their Clue characters from the board game, with Eileen Brennan as Mrs. Peacock, Madeline Kahn as Mrs. White, Christopher Lloyd as Professor Plum, Michael McKean as Mr. Green, Matron Mull as Colonel Mustard, Leslie Ann Warren as Miss Scarlet, we stand, uh, and Colleen Camp as a vet. Of course, Tim Curry as Wadsworth the butler. Also, a shout-out to Lee Vin, who is the lead singer of Fear, who played Mr. Body, and Jade Weedlin of the Go-Go's as the singing telegram girl. Fun little one in there. So this one on the tomato meter got a 65% critic with an 86% audience. Interestingly enough, that critic score was much lower at the time this movie came out, as it was basically universally panned uh, and was a complete and total flop. <laughs> Recent reviews have kind of helped dig it out of that tomato meter hole and boosted up the critic score a little bit. So the tagline on this one is the movie that makes a scene of the crime. And the premise here is pretty simple. It is 
based off the board game Clue. The way they've taken it is a group of seemingly strangers are invited to a dinner party at a mansion in the woods, all having received a similar letter, giving each of them a different color-themed alias to go by. At this party over dinner, they soon find out they have much more in common than they think. Each one of them are being blackmailed, and the blackmailer, Mr. Body, has also been invited. With the cops on the way, Mr. Body gives each of them a weapon, telling them to kill the butler, Wadsworth, the one who wrote the letters and brought them all here. When the lights go out, someone is killed, but it's not Wadsworth, and Mr. Body is the one who ends up on the floor. But who did it, and with what weapon? Hijinks are bound to ensue. So this is a movie I absolutely adore. I'm constantly putting it on a list whenever someone asks me what my favorite movies are, and I have to go, Clue just is an easy one to throw up there, because I watch this fairly regularly. There's always something new I get out of each time. And I don't know if it's my, I think it might be my favorite Tim Curry performance in anything, even maybe more than Rocky Horror Picture Show, just because Wadsworth is a character. We'll get into that, obviously. Uh, what did you think about Clue? Have you never seen this one? Uh, it was a lot of fun. I thought that for a movie that is pretty much just an adaptation of a board game, that it did a really good job of making those elements of the board game familiar through like the weapons that they're given and the uh, pseudonyms that they're all given when they arrive. But in terms of like the actual premise of the movie, it's kind of a, a fun romp and a bit of an original story since it's been a while since I've played Clue the game, but I don't think that there's really any real setup that you're given when you play that. It's just kind of like somebody has died and you have to figure it out. So I thought the way that they kind of got to that and um, yeah, the way that they got to that was really good and a lot of fun. And uh, it's just kind of like a very zany, if that's the right word to use. It is quite zany. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just a lot of fun to watch. This is definitely a movie that uh, I've had a few people who have shown it to who ended up either not not that they didn't like it, but they just maybe didn't quite connect to the humor of this movie. And it is very zany is a good word. It's campy. It's very frenetic. It's all over the place. Uh, so it's, it's not one that I find everyone connects with, uh, but it's definitely become a cult classic for a reason. So we're uh, some of the like, standout things in this for you then. I mean, you can't, start talking about what the standouts are about this movie without immediately talking about Tim Curry, of course. I just have like a, yeah. a single note that says that Tim Curry is doing the absolute most. Like he was the most doing just like doing so much to carry the whole movie in terms of like the setup and creating sort of like this frenetic energy that carried through the whole movie. Like the final scene of the movie, you know, where he's like explaining what happened? Yeah, and... he's going through how it all happened. And he, they're just rushing back and forth. Yeah, and he's just reenacting the entire movie. Basically, he's doing these little quippy pers uh, like impersonations of all the other characters as he's filling in what happened. And it's like such a breakneck pace that like I had to watch it like several times to even catch some of the little things in all of it. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And I thought the rest of the cast was also great. Everybody was really, oh, like, committed to yes. their respective I characters. I about this cast forever. <laughs> I love every every person in this cast with maybe only one or two exceptions. But basically everyone in this cast does exactly what they need to do. 
And it's very interesting because basically all the people here are more or less the first choice for their characters. Lin had a lot of cho- uh, say in who he he picked for all these characters. A few exceptions, one being Wadsworth. Like, it wasn't supposed to be Tim Curry. He was, like, third pick or something. Interesting. The first pick uh, was a guy who ended up dying uh, before they could even film the movie. And so he was obviously out. I don't remember exactly who that was. But I know that the next pick was going to be Rowan Atkinson. Uh, Mr. Bean was going to be Wadsworth in this. And that just blows my mind. And I can't even imagine this movie with Mr. Bean in the role. I know he does other things and I've seen him in other things, but like, that'd be crazy. I think it would be interesting. I mean, like Tim Curry brings a very specific uh, element to the things that he's in, but yeah, it would definitely be a very different movie with Rowan Atkinson. But yeah, I mean, if you're only sort of experienced with Rowan Atkinson, as like Mr. Bean or, you know, some of um, like Johnny English or something. But if you've ever watched like Black Adder and stuff like that, he definitely has, the right level that I think he would have done a good job, but even just see, seeing him as the store clerk in love, actually like channeling a bit of that, even <laughs> like you could do it. Yeah. I think there's, they're definitely kind of on par, but having seen it with Tim Curry, it's very difficult to imagine anybody else in that role. It seems like a lot of Tim Curry's roles. He's never the first pick for, which is shocking because after the fact, you just can't imagine anyone else. I think it's because he's such a character actor. Maybe that like people don't see him as like a leading man. I don't feel good yeah. saying that, but that's a possibility. The uh, the other big one here was uh, Miss Scarlet. Uh, wasn't supposed to be Leslie Ann Warren, which I mean I love Leslie Ann Warren. She killed it in this so role. Much. She She's was so phenomenal. Good. It was actually supposed to be Carrie Fisher. Interesting. Yeah, and this uh, this article that uh, I I remember watching another. I think it was maybe the movie bitches. Um, episode on Clue, and then mentioning that um, in this article, I actually looked up about it. The, the headline is just Carrie Fisher was the original Miss Scarlet, but it was the '80s, so comma you know comma cocaine. <laughs> it's like whoa, yikes! <laughs> but uh, yeah, she was uh, in rehab at the time and couldn't make the filming, sadly. But Leslie and Warren did a really good job. No, she was great. They, uh, they all did. This time, I think my absolute favorite had to be Eileen Brennan as Mrs. Peacock, who was giving me everything I needed. Oh, I love her. So when the initial setup happens where they're all in the room and Wadsworth has announced that the cops are on their way and you're all being blackmailed by Mr. Body and he's going to pay for his crimes and all this, blah, blah, blah. And then Mr. Body hands them all a, a gift wrap box. It's all... The various weapons from Clue, the rope and the candlestick and the revolver. And he says, one of you can just kill Wadsworth and we can all leave here before the cops come. Turns off the lights, ends up obviously being Mr. Body who dies. And then in the ensuing aftermath, they're trying to figure out who killed him. And Miss Peacock is like downing her brandy. And then Mr. Ring goes, maybe it was the brandy. Maybe the brandy was poisoned. And there is like, it's got to be like 30 seconds of her just screaming her head off. Just in the most maniacal, crazy scream as they're all just, like, dragging her and putting her on the couch. Mr. Reed slaps her. And, like, she was really giving me the, like, the physical comedy. And I just kept noticing her in the background of every shot. I loved her. Another Miss Peacock scene I really liked is when she's like, oh, I need to go to the the ladies' room. Uh, where's that? And uh, a vet points goes, oh, wee oui, wee, oui, madame, it's over there. 
she goes, oh, no, I just need to powder my nose. It's just a stupid joke on Wee Wee. <laughs> and there's so much bad humor in this, but I don't even care because it made me laugh so hard. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, silly wordplay and, you know, intentional um, miscommunication that really makes the dynamics in this movie work. Yeah, it really is. The, the ensemble cast, the witty banter, the really whip-fire smart script that's just, like, off the walls, like, go, go, go. There's so much dialogue in this movie that's just thrown around so quick. It is very similar in a lot of ways to a movie that I know you haven't seen, but uh, Knives Out. I could tell that Knives Out borrowed heavily from this because I think since this movie, I had never seen another ensemble cast movie like this that worked so well until Knives Out. Like, everyone is so well playing off each other here. I love all of the reactions to finding the dead bodies. Um, because everything, like, everybody is just so high-key the whole movie. Which ordinarily would probably not be a good thing. Because it doesn't give anyone anywhere to go. But for whatever reason, it just works in this movie. It's like, every time... I think, actually, it kind of works in the reverse. Where everybody starts and they're very high-key. And it's like, the more bodies they find out, they're like... Yeah. They start to kind of, like plateau because you just kind of like yeah. get used to it which is not a great response to finding multiple dead bodies but i love how throughout the whole movie just like they're panicking over what to do about uh mr body and the cook who they find dead next and then the motorist shows up like hey can i use your phone and they're all like freaking out because they're trying to figure all this out and then they just like invite him in to use the phone lock him in the room because they don't know what to do he ends up dead. More people show up like a cop and then they lock him in a room and then he ends up dead. It's just like more and more people keep showing up to this house winding up dead. And then in the end when you find out they all actually were involved in this whole plot and they were all invited here, it just makes it that much better. <laughs> it's just like high level hijinks. I love it. Yeah, the layering of, you know, the motivations and the overlap of like how everybody's involved yeah. is very fun. Um, I just I have to say as going off the motorist, there are so many things about this movie, Tim Curry included, that remind me of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like when, who is it that arrives first? It's Colonel Mustard, right? And as he's driving up, so, yeah. like literally my first note was like, the exterior of this house looks very familiar. Like, is this the house from Rocky Horror yeah. Picture Show? And I meant to look it up and find out if it was, but it's I'm not. It's not. It looks very similar. And then, of course, you have like Miss Scarlet, whose car breaks down and she gets picked up by Professor Plum and it's raining. So it's got like broken down car in the rain and yeah. just like so many different things. And then, of course, you've got the motorist who shows up. It's like, oh, my car broke down. Can I use your phone? It's just like all of these little elements that are like so tied to Rocky Horror. It's disappointing that the house isn't the same one, but it's, yeah. Also that whole scene right at the beginning where Wadsworth arrives and he has to like lure the dogs so that he can chain them back. And like, I don't know why you would have dogs like that, like two feet from the door, like the entrance, but yeah. uh, it just makes like another fun element of people having to navigate that as they enter the house. And like also when they leave the house uh, or attempt to leave the house, rather that running dog poop gag at the beginning is so dumb. It and it gets me so every time good. it gets me every time, which is like every single one of them enters the house and they're just like looking around, smelling something like they all just look at the bottom of their shoes. And it's just like, you know what though? Like that is a realistic a response <laughs> to somebody else yeah. stepping in dog poop because the smell really yeah. lingers. But yeah, no, it's a very fun visual gag for sure. 
The whole beginning of this movie is really great. I love the first dinner when they're all sitting around this dining table. They're all like trying to size each other up. Like they're all asking each other these questions, being really dismissive and shady. And then it slowly starts to come out one by one. Like, oh, you live in Washington. Oh, you have connections to the military in Washington. Oh, you have connections to this. And they all, like, find out that, like, oh, I know who you are. Oh, but I know who you are. And it's, like, just the mystery element of it really starts to build. And there's something about, like, that classic murder mystery dinner party. People are gathered in the woods at night amongst, like, a storm. No one knows who each other is. And it was setting such good mystery for me that it wasn't just the comedy that worked for me in this movie. I really got into the whole mystery element of it. Yeah. Which I think obviously is important for this movie. I felt really bad for the cook after she gets murdered because there's like a few scenes where they're running back and forth from the kitchen or not from the kitchen, from the parlor. And she's just like in the doorway because they dropped her body there and everyone's just kind of stepping over her, like not really paying too much attention to her. I was like, this poor woman who's been murdered and it's just like nobody's paying her any attention yeah i also want to give as we're talking about people too just another shout out to madeline khan as mrs white who is phenomenal was an early standout for me as i watched this movie the first few times i always came back to mrs white she just has some of the best quippy dialogue i love when she's like describing her i think it's her her previous husband that died and he's like an illusionist uh goes but he never reappeared he wasn't a very good illusionist <laughs> and just like all these little insinuations you get from her about like the husbands she's killed and the whole black widow spider kind of motif she's got going on it's great mm-hmm. and and uh when she gets confronted by professor plum like how many husbands have you had she goes mine or others <laughs> or other women's <laughs> Uh, and then husbands should be like Kleenex, soft, strong, and disposable. I have the same quote uh, noted down. It yeah. was fantastic. Uh, she's great. And there is one scene that I loved. I think it was the motorist after they found some of the secret passageways. And they go into, I guess he's in the parlor because they were in the library to start. Anyway, they have a flashlight and it's also like a well-lit room. And it takes like a good like 30 seconds in this illuminated room where the body is not obscured at all for them to notice that there's a body in the middle of the room. Oh, this is when they come through the secret passage. Yeah. So they come in the room and the body is like in full view. And, you know, it wasn't, it isn't until their flashlight lands on the body in this fully illuminated room that they're like, Oh no, there's another body. Just seems like the kind of thing that you would maybe notice immediately. I love that scene too, especially when they uh, realize they're locked in that room (laughs) <laughs> and then you've got them like screaming everyone comes down everyone's pounding the other side of the door let us in let us in and then it pans back to them let us out let us out <laughs> and then Yvette just running over to the cabinet grabbing the gun and just like point blank shooting at the door <laughs> just like everyone's like oh fuck <laughs> yeah not getting oh. any warning at all that she's intending <laughs> no. to do this she was a good shot though. oh yeah I made that note too I was like wow she's a great shot <laughs> I love that and i want to know her whole backstory she's very interesting her just like completely phony over the top french accent in her so tiny little french maid outfit is hilarious apparently she wore that outfit to uh her audition and that's kind of what landed her the role she was up against a lot of people for that role apparently too like um i was reading madonna and demi moore were both out for that role but she absolutely killed it i i 
love Colleen Camp here. Yeah, even sometimes when I'm watching performances where somebody doesn't do a great job, when I hear that somebody else could have done that role, I'm like, mm. and I think part of that is like sometimes because like the writing is maybe not great, but I think yeah. that she did such a good job with Yvette, you know, because she was, despite like the comedy of the movie itself, like she was kind of like the comic relief in a lot of ways because a lot of her delivery is like very deadpan and it just oh, yeah. makes it work really well. Kind of going back to how this ties back into the board game. Like, I really agree with what you said before that I think this movie does like a surprisingly good job of tying into a board game that it's based off of. I played a lot of Clue growing up and I think it really, this house they've, they've got here perfectly encapsulates the Clue board to me in so many ways. And it really tied together for me in that scene where they've all split up into pairs to investigate the house. And then there's a scream or whatnot. And they all come out of the various hallways and doors, but it's all within one frame. So you're just looking at the house, basically almost like a cross section. You just watch slowly as everyone comes out in the same frame out of a various door. Mm-hmm. And it, it just like perfectly looked like and captured the feeling of the board itself. I thought that was really, really cool. And even the frenetic pace of this movie makes so much sense for the board game, because realistically, if you break down what's happening in the board game, it's like six or so people, and you don't know what one of you murdered the person, because it's basically, it's like one of you. Mm -hmm. It's one of the players is the one that's killed Mr. Body, and you're trying to basically wildly accuse each other every round of the game. Like, I think it was this person with this weapon in this place. And it's just wild accusations and running back and forth across this house. Like, you're literally just running back and forth room to room in this house the whole time. It's how the game is played. And so I thought it was really interesting how they captured that in the movie. And I think it was very deliberate, the pace of this movie. And, like, Wadsworth rushing back and forth across the house trying to lay out what actually happened perfectly encapsulated that feeling for me. Yeah, I agree. Every room also just looked so perfect. Like the way they staged each room in that specific era and time, it had that, I don't want to say centennial, that's not right, is it? It had that specific look. Mid-century, is that what you're going for? Mid-century, maybe, yeah. It's supposed to be set in the 50s, so that's the right time time Yeah, but like, it was set in the 50s, but the house looked like probably it was been that way for a while before, too. Okay, I I understand what you're trying to say. Yeah, it was like... Early 1900s vibe, I guess. Yeah. One thing I loved about Miss Scarlet was that, like, everything she says to everybody is, like, she's clearly, like, down to fuck with literally everybody at this party. Uh, And I said in my notes, like, especially the maid, but I think that's because, as we find out later, that there's, like, a employee-employer personal relationship there. Yeah. But, yeah, it was, like, everything she said was, like, dripping with suggestion and you know she's like hanging out of her dress and but like it worked oh it worked so well uh yeah i got definitely strong vibes between her and basically every character regardless of gender yeah she seemed like she was into everyone which i definitely liked i also liked on that same topic like mr green is a character who is like thing he's being blackmailed one of the things is that he's in the closet and he just like before anyone can even get around to like exposing him or whatever, when Wadsworth is going around and like telling everyone, basically you're being blackmailed for this. You're being blackmailed for this. Mr. Green just comes out and says, I'll say it. 
I'm a homosexual and I don't care. I'm only keeping it a secret because of my job or whatever. And like, I'm proud and this stuff. And like, it was, <laughs> was kind of cool. I like that. Yeah. I just kind of jumping ahead a little bit with respect to that line of like the things that I would say that I didn't like about this movie, which are not. Well, let's get there after. Let's get okay. there after. Let's leave that. Let's leave a pin in that. Yeah, but the, the the whole thing is I feel no personal shame or guilt about this, but I must keep it a secret or lose my job on security grounds. I like I appreciate that they threw that in there because at the time it would have been real easy for him to just be like so afraid of anyone finding out and just be so shameful and just you know how it it, it could have easily gone the other way. And yeah. I like that they took the time to just be like, I have no shame about it. It's just a job thing. It was kinda cool. Yeah, I know what you're getting to, and I have uh, I also have thoughts on that. I I wrote some stuff down about that too. I also really liked when the police officer eventually makes it to the house, and you know people are like, "Oh, when the cops arrive," and they're like, "The cops are already here." But more specifically, when they lock him in another room, and yeah. um, you know they're going around to like the various rooms, and somebody goes in back into uh, the parlor, and they they're like, "Yep, still two bodies in there." Like. Like, two bodies is a positive thing, but more so uh, the fact that J. Edgar Hoover himself is calling on the phone and, you know, they ask, like, why is J. Edgar Hoover on your phone? He's like, well, if he's on everybody else's phone, why shouldn't he be on mine? <laughs> yeah. Uh, nothing like joking about government surveillance. <laughs> I know, right? But I guess during the 50s, we're talking about, like, Cold War stuff, so not unusual, I guess. I'm not a historian. Is there anything we want to touch on before we maybe go and talk about the endings? Because I really want to talk about the endings. Uh, no, we can go ahead and do the endings. I think that's most of the stuff we've got up to the endings. So one of the big claims to fame of this movie is the multiple endings. And why this was so critically panned at the time was because it was a theater gimmick. Like, you would get one of those endings if you saw this in theaters. They would play one of the random three endings, basically. And so people didn't like it. People hated that because... Some of the endings aren't as satisfying, and some of the endings aren't as long, and it made the movie quite a bit shorter without the other two endings, and it just doesn't feel complete, and it misses that whole element of, I mean, Clue, the board game, can end in any different way, right? And that's what they're trying to emulate here, the movie having, but it could have happened this way, and then going into a whole other ending, which is great, but I could see myself getting kind of mad if I only saw one of these endings in theaters. So that was a big part of why it got panned. But when they're all together on like the DVD copy or something like this that we've been watching on, uh, I believe we found this on Prime Video, it works really well for me. I love the multiple endings. I love the kind of escalation of them. The way they've ordered them is really good. The way the same things pop up in each of the endings. My favorite line is just the communism is just a red herring, which comes up in all the endings. Oh, I love it. The endings are so good. <laughs> I think, I I don't know if I would be upset if I saw this in theaters and I only had one ending, but I think it would just be so fun to, like, so chaos like that, where you're talking to your friend who also saw it, maybe at a different theater, and you're yeah. like, oh, and the ending, and then you start talking about the ending, and then it's like, wait, like, your movie had a completely different ending than mine, and that really kind of incentivizes people to buy it. If it becomes yeah, available that's on. the idea. I think it didn't work at the time. I don't know for what exact reason. My, I had some things written down. Like, it would be interesting if the gimmick would work better if the endings were a little bit longer. 
where the movie didn't feel like you were cutting out like 20 minutes of the movie or whatever. Because uh, it's not super long without the other endings either, to be honest. Or if there were even more endings. Uh, I know there is also a fourth cut ending. They actually filmed a fourth ending where Wadsworth is the killer and just killed everyone. I don't remember the exact specifics about uh, why and how it all went down. Because largely no one remembers and knows. Because both the director and uh, writer here, Landis and Lynn, neither of them remember. And no one involved really remembers the exact specifics of it but there is a novelization of this and i guess in the novelization he it came out before the movie and he was told all four endings and wrote all four endings into the novelization so we know a bit about it based on that and actually because of that this novel this paperback novels become extremely rare and valuable interesting <laughs> the clue the clue movie novelization which they didn't print a lot of apparently it wasn't a very great ending though so that's why they cut it it didn't make a ton of sense with Wadsworth killing everyone and he like i don't know to see if he could get away with it or something i don't remember yeah i don't know i mean i think you could probably get away with an ending like that i mean you know it's one of those limited cast kind of stories so having one person kill everybody and then just kind of like set it up to be on somebody else is not beyond the realm of possibility. No, I think it's good that the movie had multiple endings and that they kind of strung together sort of what the possible outcomes could have been because there's not really any way as a viewer to be like, unless you watch this movie like a hundred times to kind of make note of like who was in what scene at what point to kind of come up with your own estimation of what the outcome could have been because you're like oh who wasn't present when we checked on the cook and it's like everything happens so quickly in this movie that to like yeah make note of who was where at what time is a because real it's challenge. so frenetic it does lead itself to almost anyone being the killer in a lot of ways i think i've always liked yeah. the the first one the best with miss scarlet and having Yvette was the one who killed both uh, Mr. Body and the cook, which makes a lot of sense to me in the timing and everything, and how she was listening the whole time on the tapes, and that would have made sense. And then it was actually Miss Scarlet who killed everyone else because she was paying off the cop and, and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, And I just think Leslie and Warren delivered that so well. Her little you found me out speech and all that, where it come, it, each, one, each time it comes down to who has the gun for the most recent murder, right? Who killed the singing telegram girl so it's yeah. everyone empty out your pockets and your purses and and each time it's a different person and this time it's miss scarlet and she just like has that smarmy smile on and goes oh good job wadsworth you found me out and it's like a little may westy i guess and she is the whole time she gave mm -hmm. me very like alaska's may west vibes <laughs> Ugh, I just the poor singing her. telegram girl who I had know. like three three lines before it's like bang dead i just like that it was someone from the go-go's <laughs> just hilarious to me that's a fun detail. Yeah. That scene always cracks me up, though, when she's, they, you, just, you don't see the killer, it's just the door swings open, and he goes, I am your singing telegram. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have seen um, the gif of Mrs. White going, you know, flames, flames on the side of my face yes. hundreds yes. of times online, yep. and I was waiting the whole movie for this scene yeah. to, like, appear and it really and it was only in one of the endings and i was really yeah surprised and honestly grateful because sort of that was my one expectation for the movie was that scene which i believe was completely improvised by madeline khan this movie had a very strict like they did they weren't allowed to ad-lib a lot like they were told not to ad-lib and 
that was one of the very rare ad-libs that made it in because it was so good. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if I went into this expecting for that scene, because, you know, it's become kind of an iconic scene from this movie and, you know, because it's a streaming option or whatever, you know, depending on what service you're watching on, say, determines which ending you ended up with. Like if I didn't get, I would be very confused and I would be kind of annoyed. So it's good that we got all three for that, for that one scene for me. Oh, for sure. Flames, flames on the side of my face. Birdie, birdie. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. (laughs) I think Wadsworth is also at his very best uh, at the very end of this movie here with explaining how each murder went down and, and who did what and why and all that. And uh, it's, he really, really shines in this. Apparently though, he did have to go to the hospital after filming all these, this ending stuff because he was, like just that exhausted. Oh wow! Because of like just the pace he's going at, and just like the physical aspect of everything here. And that's when we get the uh, the great call out to the board game as well. Um, when he shouts, "That's what we're trying to find out. We're trying to find out who killed him and where and with what." <laughs> <sighs> just like as soon as they said that, I just like I smile so much. It's like oh, it's the board game. That's what you're trying to do in the board game. <laughs> And even just the introduction of the weapons, which we talked too much about, I thought was so clever, where, like, Mr. Body hands them all a gift-wrapped present, and in it is each of the weapons from the board game. So now those are all in play, and that's just such a clever way of doing it, because the one thing in the board game is always, like, like okay, like, who's picking up a wrench to just, like, and why is this wrench in, like, the billiards room for some reason, stuff like that? Like, it kind of makes it all make sense here. Yeah, no, I thought that the way that the weapons were handed out was it really added like another layer of mystery to what was already going on. You know, they're kind of understanding that they are connected, but they're not really sure how. And then, you know, like you're being given a box and it's got like a length of rope or like a lead pipe or something. And you're like, what the hell is going on here? And, you know, if you're familiar with the game, then you understand. But if you're maybe not, which would be surprising to me, you know, you're on the same page as the characters going like, well, what's going on here? It almost kind of yeah. feels like what's being set up is like, here you've been invited to this dinner, and now everyone has a weapon, and whoever gets to kill somebody first is like, the winner! So you don't really know exactly where the movie is going from that point. So yeah, there was just like a lot of different things that they could have done with, you know, the very basic framing of this board game. Because like I said at the beginning, the game doesn't really give you like any major framework for like what's going on. It's like, here's a house. Somebody's died. Like you I are these think people. There's just a, there's a broad thing in the rules that basically say why you're all there and all that. I think it's a similar thing. It's like, you've all gathered here for a party or something. Yeah. And your host is dead. Cause I think, yeah, Mr. Body's the host of the party and he winds up dead or something. It's just like this very vague framework. Uh, so do we want to get into some of the things that didn't work so well for us? Yeah, let's do that. So we wanted to, Put a, let's go back to that pin we put into uh, Mr. Green. I think I know what you're going to say, but go for it. <laughs> so because we find out that he's actually an FBI agent and he's like basically been involved in catching all of these people out, that anything that he told them thus far, even the fact that like he's a homosexual, could have been a lie. So on his way out, like after they've determined who did it and for what reason, on his way out the door, he goes, well, I'm going home to my wife. 
I was like, you could have just like not done that. You could have like left it ambiguous as to whether or not he was really gay or not. It just felt like a weird like bow that they felt they needed to put on it to just be like, oh, by the way, in the last, you know, five seconds of the movie, we're just going to do like a classic no homo. And that, yeah. it just kind of nickled me a little bit. I've gone back and forth on this a lot. Sometimes I watch it and I just like, I know that's coming and I cringe a bit knowing it's coming. And it's a little frustrating because like, he's such a, like, if you take that out, it's one of the first, like, real n- good positive portrayals of, like, a gay male character in a movie that isn't vilified for it at all, that is accepted for it. There's, like, one or two, when he says, like, I'm homosexual or whatever, I think Professor Plum, like, goes, oh, and, like, takes a few steps back or something. But, like, for the most part, he's allowed to be part of the action to, like, he's not treated like a weirdo or a sissy or any of the other tropes at this time. Mm -hmm. He's not killed or demonized or anything like that. And, like, all that is... Like, a lot of it's pretty progressive for the time in a lot of ways. And he he is one of the only characters, I think, that in none of the endings murdered anyone. Yeah. Which is nice. (laughs) I mean, that's because, like, he works for the FBI, so it would be weird if he was a murderer. in one ending. Yeah. In one ending. And that's the thing, because, like, it's not in every ending that he's the FBI guy. That's in one of the endings. And in all the other endings, I think we're not supposed to assume that that's true. I think he is just another person getting blackmailed. Yeah, but because the final ending is, but this is how it really happened, then I think watching the other two endings, then you kind of... That is, yes, but also unreliable narration. The fact that this wasn't the ending shown to everyone in movie theaters, like, I think that's mostly tacked on. Like, that wasn't supposed to be the ending, I don't think, because if you never saw the ending in movie theaters, you would just assume... Mr. Green is an open, proud, queer man. Yeah, I guess. And that, like, never enters the conversation if you, that's what you saw in theaters. Yeah. I agree, though. Like, I, it, was, it pissed me off. It was stupid. Like, we didn't need to have that. I get what it was because this has been employed both ways many times. The, the third act reveal, um, the other one I'm thinking of off the top of my head that drives me insane that's sim- very similar to this is Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Andrew who in that is never stated what his sexuality is but he is extremely effeminate and hits on guys all the time and is a closeted character for all purposes of the TV show and then in the one episode on I believe Angel that he goes on or something like that at the end of the episode, he walks off uh, with, like, two really hot model women with his arms around them or whatever, and, like, wink, wink at the audience. Yeah. And it's real dumb. Real, real dumb. And this gave me very much vibes of that. Where it's like, the joke is, he's been straight the whole time, I guess. That's the joke. I don't know. But the way it was delivered, also, I don't know. I couldn't 100% fault it, because it's just... So dumb, almost the way it's delivered at the very end of the movie, where it's like, and I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife. Yeah. <laughs> and I almost don't know if I even believe him. <laughs> no, I I feel the same yeah. where, you know, the delivery does feel like it could be kind of like an overcompensation. But yeah. at the same time, like, you could have just not included it at all. And it would have kind of made it I better think for me. I had other endings where Mr. Green's sexuality was more tied into the ending in other endings 
So in some endings, maybe he killed that driver because he was having an affair with that driver or something. Like they tied it in something like that, where like Mr. Green actually had some sort of connection to one of the other male characters or something like that in one ending. And then in another ending, he's actually an FBI agent who's straight pretending. Like I would have been less mad at that if it was very explicit in one of the other endings. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think that could have been interesting, but I kind of wish we just left off those last five seconds and it was just, who knows? I don't know. That was kind of like the big thing for me in terms of like things that didn't work. Yeah. Because like, you know, like we've already said a number of times, you know, like the frenetic pace of the movie keeps propelling the story forward, keeps you very engaged. Everybody just like hit it perfectly with, you know, their characterizations. The only thing I maybe didn't like in addition to this one line is the way that Professor Plum's character was always kind of like trying to put his hand on Miss Scarlet's butt, like right as they're at the door and she like gives him the what for for that. He's always kind of creepily hovering around her which makes her visibly uncomfortable. I think that's maybe like the only other thing that like really bothered me, but like not in a major way. Yeah. I kind of agree with that. And a similar thing I kind of felt with Colonel Mustard. I felt the same way about Colonel Mustard. Honestly, he maybe not to the same degree, but basically anyone who wasn't Mr. Green was a little pervy at times in this. Yeah. Which I think they balanced it somewhat well especially with how most of the cast in this movie is very sexually charged and very sexual in general. It didn't feel too out of place for me where everyone was kind of vibing like that together in a way that it basically worked for me more or less. I don't know. I think the characters having like palpable sexual chemistry is one thing, but like having male characters constantly trying to initiate unwanted touching with female characters kind of at every turn was kind of like, okay, like it was a joke yeah. that, you know, Yvette's breasts were just like a literal shelf that everybody couldn't help but look at. Like that was a joke, but sort of like the other stuff was, I mean, it was supposed to be jokey, I think, but my response to it was what? like, if less good. There was times where like, I think it worked better where like, they're all pretending to make out with these dead bodies. Basically when the cops walking in, they're like put on some jazz music and all like drag these dead bodies around and like are basically pretending to make out with them. And it's kind of creepy and many levels and kind of hilarious in many levels. And those are some of the scenes where like Plum and Scarlet are having this like kind of witty back and forth sexual sparring almost. I thought sometimes it worked because Scarlet gave it back as much as Plum did and she didn't seem like she was being preyed upon in some scenes so much as the banter of it all. Mm -hmm. And then in some scenes I was like, uh, it's kind of crossing the line for me. Yeah, There was like mostly in little moments off to the side where Plum would be like kind of aggressive towards one of the women or something like that. Mostly Scarlet or Yvette. There was just little bits here and there. Yeah. Obviously it's 1985 and I've seen many movies from 1985 that handled something like that a lot worse. But it could have been better. My other big uh, gripe with this movie... I wouldn't say big gripe. My other small gripe with this movie, because there's very little in this movie for me to gripe about. I find that towards the middle of this movie, they really kill the pace when they all split up into pairs and search the house. And it goes on for a little too long for me with very little dialogue or action happening. We're just cutting back and forth to characters with like long, sweeping shots of creepy music as they like 
stare up an attic or stare down some stairs into a basement and are like, eh, I don't know. And it, it basically killed the vibe of the movie for me because up until then, it was just like breakneck pace of witty dialogue. I wouldn't say at the very beginning it's breakneck pace, but it like really built from everyone entering the building to the murders happening of Mr. Body and the cook. Yeah. It like builds and builds and builds and we're just gaining momentum and gaining momentum and gaining momentum. And then there's like a 10 minute period, 15 minute period, maybe where it really slowed down for me before more people get murdered and then we're back into it. I don't know if it needed to be that long of them creeping around the house personally. Yeah. I mean, them creeping around the house, that could have been a fun opportunity for like one of the central cast of the movie to like end up dead, particularly because like, I know in the game, it's supposed to be the host of the, the party that dies, but to also include like one of the, the cast as a potential victim could have been an interesting way. I think the way that a movie drags like that, really comes down to the fact that like this movie is an adaptation of a board game. So you're coming from like a pretty flimsy foundation to build, you know, like a 90 minute movie around. So you have to kind of extend the runtime in a little bit. And then of course, as you said, you know, if you don't have, you know, all three endings at the end when you're watching it in theaters, then, you know, you're already decreasing the runtime in that regard as well. Yeah. Yeah, you you couldn't really cut five, ten minutes of that middle bit there without making the single ending in a theater feel even shorter. Mm-hmm. So I definitely get why they wouldn't have done it. But for like a DVD release, I I think we could trim a bit of the middle because I did find myself like going to my phone a bit or whatever during that part. Maybe it's also because I've seen this movie so many times, so there wasn't really any tension there for me. Yeah. Maybe if I was watching it for the first time as they're creeping around, I would expect something to happen and I would be tense, but because I knew exactly what was going to happen, this was like where I would take a pee break if I was watching this movie, basically. <laughs> yeah, even just like, I think there is a scene where somebody discovers a rat. Is Yeah, yeah. in the basement. So like if there was, you know, like more things where, you know, they got spooked by something innocuous, like maybe like a dress yeah. form that's hidden in one of the rooms that kind of looks like a person and like the angle of the light kind of you know, something like that, you know, it's like a stupid uh, scare moment that doesn't have anything, but at least creates a little bit of something during those scenes. Yeah. I I liked how all that tied into the secret passages and everything as well. And then the second time they split up when the power goes out, that added a whole bunch more tension. And I liked all the little gags when the lights went out too, like uh, Wadsworth stumbling around and like opening the door and being, aha. And then he goes to open the door behind that door, but it's actually a shower handle in terms of the shower. (laughs) it's stupid but there's so many stupid things in this movie like the humor in this movie goes from being like really witty well-written dialogue to like poop jokes and like dumb 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 sight gags and physical slapstick but it works for some reason for the all that stuff yeah i think having like a balance of like highbrow and lowbrow humor just kind of makes things it makes it work and it also makes it accessible for people it's the balancing between them that really makes the movie work yeah so I guess that, that brings us to our rating. What would you rate this movie on our scale? Is this perfect as is? Could it use some ketchup or would you douse it? Um, I think I have to go with perfect as is. Like I had only two very small complaints about the movie and they're negligible in terms of my overall enjoyment of the movie. And as I said at the top of the episode, 
you know, for a movie that is literally just an adaptation of a board game, uh, it does a really good with the premise and it's a lot of fun. I 100% agree. This is an easy perfect as is for me. It is infinitely rewatchable, thoroughly entertaining, and definitely a great movie to pick for a Tim Curry spotlight because he really makes this movie work. You must be Master Hawkins. Yes, sir. Oh, you needn't be calling the lowly ship's cook, sir. Long John Silver, at your humble service. But we're just cabin boys, Mr. Silver. Long John to his friends. And believe me, lad, a friend you can trust is worth his weight in gold. There's many a dark-hearted scoundrel in these ports. What do you mean, pirates? Shh! Pirates? Ho, 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 that's rich. Pirates? What an imagination. Give me a cracker. Allow me to introduce my pet lobster, Polly. Pieces of eight, pieces of eight. Raised him from a fingerling, I did. As fine a crustacean as a man could ask for. But I thought sailors had talking parrots as pets. Talking parrots? Yeah, what an imagination. First pirates, now talking parrots? What's next? A singing, dancing mouse with his own amusement park? Woo-hoo! So my movie choice for this week is Muppets Treasure Island. And this is a 1996 release and stars Tim Curry... Billy Connolly, Kevin Bishop, Jennifer Saunders, and, of course, a number of of the Muppet crew who are voiced by a variety of people. And this movie is directed by Brian Henson and Mark Loparco, who's listed on IMDb as being uncredited. Um, Brian Henson, of course, has done a lot of work with all of the various Muppet productions, as well as a lot of the other... Jim Henson Productions, including Labyrinth and Fraggle Rock. Basically, if it's a Henson production, uh, Brian Henson has been involved with it in some capacity at some point in time. This is an adaptation of the book written by Robert Louis Stevenson, and the screenplay was written by Jerry Jewell, who, uh, similarly to Brian Henson, has primarily only been involved with Muppet productions. He has written pretty much every other Muppet movie and has been involved in a lot of the other Muppet-related properties. This has a tomato meter score of 73% critic and 77% audience. I thought those scores were a little bit on the low side, so I'm interested in going back and kind of seeing what people had to say about it. I didn't really read any of the reviews when I was putting my notes together. And the tagline for this movie is Set Sail for Muppet Mayhem. So the premise of this is young orphan Jim Hawkins learns of the treasure of a pirate by the name of Captain Flint that was lost when he killed his crew so the location of the treasure would remain a secret from one Billy Bones. Uh, One of Bones' former shipmates arrives seeking revenge as Bone had betrayed his crewmates. On his deathbed, Bones gives Jim a map, the actual map, to Flint's treasure. Jim, along with best friend Rizzo the Rat and Gonzo, seek to hire a ship and crew to find the treasure. He connects with one Squire Trelawney Jr., who is not very business-minded and who agrees to finance the whole trip. After setting sail, it becomes clear that the crew that was hired for the journey is a band of pirates led by the one and only Long John Silver, and the two sides compete to find the treasure. So this is like a pretty well-beloved 
Muppet movie of the various movies that they have put together. What did you know about this movie going in and sort of what were your initial impressions? I think this is, I checked, I think this is the only Muppet movie I've never seen. I'm not sure why. Maybe it never played on TV. I mostly watch these on TV, so I'm not sure. Do you remember seeing this on TV ever? Was this on? Um, I probably have seen it on TV at least once, I think. So I was very familiar, obviously, with the other big Muppets book adaptation of Christmas Carol. Like, I've seen a Muppets Christmas Carol many times. Um, but I'd never seen this one. And, of course, I've mostly watched the standalone Muppet movies. Like, the, the first Muppet movie is one of my absolute favorites. I love it to death. So I was just not sure why I hadn't seen this. Like, I knew quite a bit about it. I think I'd even heard several of the songs. Like, I definitely heard Cabin Fever. And I've definitely heard the song that uh, Tim Curry sings. A professional pirate. But, yes, I've never seen the movie, though. And it was basically exactly what i was expecting going in it was very similar to christmas carol which i was kind of expecting where it is half of somewhat straightforward book adaptation played somewhat seriously like with some genuine heart and human actors in there that are playing it like an actual movie and then that's set against a half cast of just zany crazy muppets breaking the fourth wall going absolutely crazy and getting up to Muppet hijinks and somehow that works and it should, (laughs) but it did. Yeah. They've really found a formula with their movies over the years that works for them and makes for just like a very fun, engaging movie that is kind of heartfelt, but also like very comedic. I wish they'd do more book book adaptations. You know, what's funny after uh, watching this movie this weekend, uh, somebody that I follow on Twitter was asking which book adaptations they would like people to see the Muppets do. And there were a lot of books in there that I didn't know, but somebody suggested a, um, like a Pride and Prejudice one, which I think would be great, but I was thinking, and I didn't say it, but I should have, I would love to see Muppets do Wuthering Heights. I think it'd be fun for them to do like Lord of the Flies or something. That might be too dark. I think that would be hard to do just based on sort of their balance of like real actors alongside the puppets because it's a story that's about kids Yeah. since really so much of their movies have like mostly adult actors in them. But I mean, it's also not out of the realm of possibility, but I mean, just the idea of like Miss Piggy playing Catherine and like a real actor playing Heathcliff or something. I feel like it would be really bad. I don't know. I feel like that movie is too fucked up and has too much tone problems for the Muppets. Like, I don't think they could, like, I think what ha- what worked well about this one in Christmas Carol is that it was a simple enough plot to to follow where they can... And there's not too much adult, I guess, stuff happening in these books where they can thread in their Muppetness and it works. I feel like if you're, like, if Miss Piggy's dog gets murdered or whatever, and, like, that's going to be a weird scene for Miss Piggy to play. Like, Miss Piggy can't play an earnest character, I don't think. I mean, one thing in this movie yeah. is, like, there is a character that dies, and Rizzo the Rat comments on that, and he's like, yeah. wow, somebody actually died. It's supposed to be a kid's movie. And it's not like yeah. people don't <laughs> die in kid's movies, but yeah. for Disney, anyway, they kind of try to avoid that where they can. I really like, more or less what I've said, that the the tone in this movie being split between this like period piece drama and the Muppets. And I think the way they've picked 
like Gonzo and Rizzo as like the leads in this one worked really well for me. Like they're the Muppets we get like the most time with, I suppose, in this. And they had really fun banter with this child actor uh, playing Jim that I thought worked. Like they, they seemed like friends and it helped balance out how utterly bland this child actor was for me. But I didn't like necessarily hate that because he almost felt like he was just a very easy con, like um, like Bella Swan esque conduit where you just like project yourself into this child actor going on fun adventures with the Muppets, and he didn't really have much of a personality or anything going on apart from his weird haircut. Well, I mean, it was a period um, piece, so, that so... Worked. yeah, his terrible accent that like really bothered me, but also I kind of loved it. It was very like. Gee Willikers, mister. And it was, like, a lot. I think the actor that played him is actually English, so it's, like, not really a put-upon accent or anything. It was being put-upon. Like, <laughs> if he's... if Like, that's not how that child goes around speaking. He doesn't speak in, like, an old-timey Cockney accent, even if he's British. I can guarantee you that. Like, it was definitely being played up as this, like, very Charles Dickens Oliver type thing, right? Yeah. But I didn't hate it. It kind of worked. Yeah. What were some of the things you liked about this movie? The terrible child actor, like I just said. Yeah. <laughs> just the um, terrible child actor? <laughs> I actually, like like I said, I thought it kind of worked. Other things apart from that that really worked for me, I really liked the gradual, just like in Christmas Carol 2, but like the gradual introduction of all the Muppets and just like that anticipation of like when I'm going to see my favorite Muppet and where they're going to be and how they're going to be put into this movie is such a treat, uh, especially like that building anticipation. Like we know Miss Peggy's going to be in this movie, for example. And like, she gets in towards the end and like gets to do her like karate chop at Kermit and all that. When they're talking about like, Oh, our fearsome captain, he's like really strict and Oh, fear our captain and all this. And then you see walking up the plank is a little Kermit being like so sweet and gentle. And it's just, ugh, it's great. I love Sam the Eagle as, uh, Samuel Arrow, the yes. first mate. Yes. Uh, just, like, seeing everyone pop up was great. Even Sweetums, the giant f- furry guy as one of the pirates. I love seeing Sweetums. I love towards the end of the movie where they're fighting and he saves yes. uh, Kermit. And I think it's um, Samuel Arrow. And they're like, mm-hmm. we thought that you were against us. And he goes, what? No, I love you guys. It's so good. And then all the new Muppets. Like, I love seeing new Muppets in all these movies, too. Like, the little weird lobster Muppet was great for me. I like Clueless, the goat or whatever. Yes. It was really, really funny. Oh, all that was great. And I guess, just like uh, Clue, it's we've already gone too long without talking about Tim Curry as Long John Silver. Obviously, Tim Curry is amazing in this movie. He just so perfectly fits in with the Muppets. Like, he's like a human Muppet. Like, he is a human Muppet. Like, there was absolutely... No difference between the way he was acting and the Muppets were acting. Like, they were on that same tone and level and energy level and everything. And it was bizarre to be how well it worked. It was great. Yeah, and I mean, that speaks to the fact that like Tim Curry is very good with camp. He understands tones. Yeah. Like, and that really worked for him as, like, being Long John Silver, who appears initially as, like, this very sweet, kind ship cook to... Jim when he first meets him and obviously if you have any experience with Tim Curry from any of his other movies you know that he has a a tendency to play characters that 
are not so trustworthy. So you're anticipating that gradual reveal. But if you're not familiar with that, then, you know, the way that he slips into sort of more piratey uh, Long John Silver, like that might be a surprise to you, although that honestly would shock me quite a lot. He's dropping a lot of hints. Yeah. Very early on. But one thing I wasn't expecting, I guess, I was expecting him to be very mustache twirly evil pirate. Like I was really expecting that. And while there was a lot of that in there, he played Long John Silver so earnestly as well. Like especially how he had this relationship with with Jim and they had like heartfelt talks at night and like you could tell that he wasn't just putting it on and that he wanted Jim to be a pirate with him at the end and like he wanted Jim to come with him and then he lets Jim escape towards the end and at the very end Jim lets him escape and there's like this real weird earnestness between them that I wasn't expecting that I think could have easily not worked like with how camp Tim Curry is, but somehow Tim Curry threads that line where like in one scene, he will be like guffawing with laughter where he's like full head tilted back, jaw separated, like a, a physical Muppet. He looked like a Muppet when he was laughing. It was hilarious. He did this crazy laugh the whole time during this movie that I loved. But then in another scene, he's like, totally earnestly has this whole like moment with the compass where he like pretends to take the compass from, from Jim and then gives it back. And then towards the end, when he steals the compass from Jim, he gives it back again. And it's like kind of got a lot of heart to it. It was weird. Have you ever read treasure Island? Are you familiar with this? Story? Oh God, no. <laughs> it's a very, no, I, I am not familiar with the story. I believe it is a book I had as a kid on a shelf that I might've tried to read a couple times. And it was like one of those books that like, I think you people often give to kids to read that like is a little too much for kids often, unless you're being read it out loud. I think that's what happened with me. Is it like a, um, Oh God, what's that book that we read in English that we both hated? You know, the one. Yes. That the the book about the prostitute? I don't think that's for kids. No, but you know, just like that kind of yeah bloated it's, writing. It's a fairly it's a fairly old, very yeah. Englishy book, and from what I remember, it is just very wordy, and it's not like a great thing to give to a nine year old. It or does something. seem pretty well regarded that this is a really good adaptation of that book, though. But I also haven't read it, so I'm not sure sort of how well the source material is translated, but I think sort of like the general elements of the story are there. I don't really feel like I'm going to go out of my way to read it for the sake of understanding it or anything, but yeah, there's so like, aside from that, like there's so many other really silly things in this movie. Like uh, when Jim goes to hire a ship, you know, he goes and he meets Squire Trelawney Jr. Who's played by Fozzie Bear. And are we talking about the parts of the movie that didn't work for us already? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll get back to how I feel about Fozzie in this movie. But, you know, he's sort of touched in the head kind of character. He talks to Mr. Bimble, who lives in his thumb, which is like a running gag throughout. Whether or not that worked for me is not relevant here, but it's just like this very weird running gag. And like everybody comments on it. It's like he's talking to his thumb. It's great. Yeah. And then, of course... One of the best scenes is they're on the ship and they're getting ready to take sail. And 
Samuel Arrow is, you know, he's taking role to make sure that everybody's there, and he reads, like, this absolutely ridiculous list. This fucking scene so is so good. So I have so a list good. of the, the pirates of the Hispaniola, which is the boat that they're on, and the pirates include Angel Marie, Beggar, Bagoonie, Big Fat Ugly Bug Face Baby Eating O'Brien, who happens to be a woman with a very deep voice. We need to set that aside and talk about that separately. And then there's Mr. Mr. Biddy, yes. Black Eyed Pea, Calico, Calico Jerry, Clueless Morgan, Dead Tom, Dodo, Easy Pete, Headless Bill. You have to go Old Tom, Really Old Tom, and Dead Tom. I don't Tom. have them They're in a list like that, but I know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Dodo, Easy Pete, Headless Bill, Jax Roach, Lou Zealand, Long John Silver, Mad Monty, Mudwell the Mud Bunny, Old Tom, One-Eyed Jack, Polly Lobster, Real Old Tom, Short Stack Stevens, Spotted Dick, Sweetums, Undertaker, Walleye Pike, Wolf, Lamb. And you're just like reading through the list, with, specifically with the Toms, is just like so fun. But the subversion of expectation with the big fat ugly bug face eat, baby eating O'Brien. And then uh, I forget which character comes immediately after that, and it's like one of the Muppets. Angel Marie is like some ugly Muppet. <laughs> anyway, it's great. Yeah. When they cut from big, fat, ugly, bug-faced, baby-eating O'Brien to this beautiful woman or whatever, uh, and it's the whole joke and all that, and have the, has the really low manly voice, and we'll get back to that, but I thought that was Gina Davis. I had to look it up, because I'm like, wait, what? Is that Gina Davis? Is Gina Davis in this movie? And I got really excited, because I know she's in another pirate movie around this same time that like infamously killed her career, sadly, but... It looked like her in that movie for some reason, but it's, yeah, uh, it's no. some other person that I don't know. But looking it up, I found that there's actually a DVD audio commentary for this film where over that Rizzo asks, what's up with her? To which Gonzo replies, don't ask, don't tell. Interesting. Which like, okay. Yeah. We'll unpack that after. The roll call itself though was very entertaining and hilarious. I had many questions like, how can you fit this many crew members onto this not-that-big ship? <laughs> it's like, you can barely fit them all on deck. There's, like, no room to stand on deck. There's so many people crammed on this deck. <laughs> yeah, when the ship is actually, you know, working shifts and people are in different parts, like, not everybody's up on the top deck, like, the whole time. But, yeah, that's part it's of the humor, right? an insane amount of Muppets. Yes, of course, it's part of the humor. It's just, like... And then when they're having their musical numbers on deck and it's, like... It's crazy bananas how many people there is, and it's just very funny to me. And then most of them we never see again. Like, we never see big, fat, ugly, bug-faced, baby-eating O'Brien the rest of the movie. I think we see them in one scene towards the end of the movie when they're taking the ship back. But other than that, they're not, like, part of the the main story at all. It's like a one-time joke. Also, the number of times we've said big, fat, ugly, bug-faced, baby-eating O'Brien in this episode is making me laugh a lot. It's it's pretty great. (laughs) Um, alongside like the main story of you know following the map is Rizzo the rat has set up like a cruise option for all of these other rats which obviously works really well with you know rats on a ship but you know like all of this other like heartfelt pirate stuff is happening and it's being balanced really well with like the humor of like the rats like popping up every once in a while and you know like they are sort of part of the story, but they're separate from the story. And, like, Rizzo's yeah. such an opportunist, so it's so good. It was such a good running gag. I was going to mention that, too. I just liked how it wasn't one of those gags where it, like, just 
it was the one time it's like, oh, he's running a cruise ship or whatever. Oh, that's funny. It like kept coming up and it kept getting better. And I laughed every time. Like when they're on the island and then Captain Smollett, who's played by Kermit, you know, they get captured by the native pigs on the island. And while all of this is happening, like the rats are like having a dinner show and they're like, this is the best food I've ever had. And this is like the juxtaposition, like Muppets does such a good job balancing like, you know, like the actual heart of the story with these weird side plots that are so funny and like the rats just did such a good job i really like the the songs in this i feel like that needs to be brought up as well yes i love the musical numbers in all the muppet movies this had some really good ones i would say maybe not my favorite muppet songs in the whole muppet canon like doesn't beat like some of the original ones obviously from that first movie like rainbow connection but there's some great songs in here i think cabin fever was probably my favorite a professional pirate is my favorite it's very good yes it's good uh i thought shiver me timbers which i believe is the opening song was a yeah. good song just for it's general good. exposition purposes it's like really kind of set the piratey tone yeah. of the movie it had a lot of original muppets in there too and i'm always so impressed how they can just churn out so many muppets that like look really good for something that's not going to be used ever again, pretty much like, like the like Tiki mountain face puppets or whatever. Really good. Yeah. I also liked the song that Kermit and Miss Piggy have love let us hear. It's sort of like the most genuine non-movie specific song. Yeah, for sure. It's cute. And I liked the non-Muppet cover of it at the end of the movie as well. But yeah, no, all the musical numbers are great. I love at the end of Cabin Fever, like, they're basically bemoaning that it's been a few weeks without any uh, wind to move the boat, so everybody's just kind of waiting around. And, like, literally, as soon as the song ends, like, the wind picks up, and they're all like, what were we doing that for? Kind of responding to it, so it's good. And then the people who are trapped in the prison cell down below are like, what were they singing up there? (laughs) Yeah. I thought I heard, like, cabin fever. It's like, uh, it's great. Yeah, that was our goat-esque guy who does that. He's so good. Yeah, clueless. I laughed so hard, and I don't think I was supposed to, maybe, exactly, when the pirates get to the island, they find the treasure. Oh, but it's not there anymore, and they all turn on Long John Silver. And one of the, the Muppets goes to Clueless, like, give it to him! And then Clueless goes, well, it's not even his birthday. <laughs> and my mind went somewhere very different. <laughs> very different. I was not sure what Long John Silver was getting from Clueless on his birthday, but <laughs> it wasn't going to a respectable place, that's for sure. Oh, goodness. And then, like, right after that, Clueless, like, when they make up or whatever, like, the they, like, rejoin Long John Silver or whatever, Clueless is, like, Oh, you're so handsome and beautiful and all these other things trying to like gain his affection back and like hey, you're selling it on pretty thick here, clueless. What's going I on? I mean he's saying this stuff because like Polly Lobster is like behind him yeah, going yeah, to be yeah. like Tell him that he's beautiful. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, you're so beautiful. Yeah. It was just like just the the timing of all this is like and you never put it past a Muppets movie to make an inappropriate joke because they like to push the envelope on some of these kids' movies and far is far it is so far as adding in adult humor. Yeah. One of the things that made me laugh the most in this movie is where Rizzo makes a comment about like a singing dancing mouse and just oh, like yeah. poking fun at the the parent company that is producing this movie. Did Disney produce this or was do they now own it because of the deal that they made later on? Um, I don't think that the uh Disney acquired the Muppets yet, did they? Maybe they did. I think they were involved. 
There was some sort of. I'm trying to think back to when they acquired him. There was that whole Disneyland thing. I watched a very, very good defunct land on it, but no, I don't remember exactly that defunct land series where I cried my eyes out. Oh God. It's so good. Anyone listening who has not seen the full Defunct Land series on Jim Henson, it's on YouTube. Go watch it. It is I'll amazing. link it in the show notes. It's very worth watching, but it, you know, it will take a little bit of time. And it's very just in general informative if you're interested in Jim Henson mm-hmm. and you know the influence that he had on so much of a lot of adults' lives and continues to have on kids' lives. But yeah, it was just a fun jab that made me laugh a lot. Like I was watching it on Disney Plus and they're making fun of Mickey Mouse's yeah, yeah, it's, it's very good. But yeah, and like all of like the little fourth wall breaks and like the very like this movie. I don't know if it is more meta than some of the other Muppet movies has been or not, but it was like very meta with a lot of the things that like Gonzo and Rizzo were it's, saying. This movie is like ten percent as meta as the recent Muppet movies have been. They go so over the top that I start to hate it. <laughs> like it's so meta now. They they like basically just want to be Deadpool. I feel like this was a good balance where it wasn't so in your face all the time. And some of the Muppets actually were like at points in character. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, meta in so far as like referencing their own stuff and not necessarily yeah. like meta in like yeah. referencing specific pop culture stuff when you're trying to like in, in both yeah. ways, but when your primary source of like being meta is just constantly making pop culture references, that's definitely when things can get really annoying. One of my favorite Muppet introductions definitely had to be near the end with the Swedish chef who's at, at Miss Piggy's, yes. uh, like, island colony, and he's got on, like, a fake pig nose, and he's, like, cooking up stuff for Miss Piggy or whatnot. Uh, and I laughed so hard. I'm like, I was thinking to myself, like, this is how they're fit, sw- uh, fitting in the Swedish chef. That's hilarious. And then literally they just, like, break the fourth wall and go, well, how else do you think we were going to fit him into this yeah. movie? And I laughed even harder. Yeah. And that's what I mean about, you know, like the the meta-ness of this movie is like acknowledging yeah. that like this is an iconic Muppet that we have to fit into this story somehow. Yeah. So, yeah, it's good. I'm going back to Tim Curry just for a moment. I know that we talked sort of, you know, about how earnest he played his role and everything. And he, he's phenomenal. He's such a good part of this movie. Um, the first time that we meet him as Long John Silver, there's been a lot of buildup for the beware the one-legged man because like death follows when you meet him. And Jim has this whole big long conversation with uh, Long John in the galley of the ship. And then he's sitting on like the swinging door and you have no, re- I mean, if you know, you know, but, yeah. you know, you have... I hadn't seen the movie, and I I, just, I knew he was going to be a part, but, like, I was just, like, the way he's sitting with yeah. his door placed, like, it's just going to happen. So when you get it the reveal... The when the yeah. Thing. yeah. So when you get the reveal, when, like, the door opens, and he's got the one leg, and it's like, oh, the one-legged man! It's just, like, the build-up to that, and then the reveal was so well done. It worked really good for me. I also liked all the little references to Kermit being like a frog or sorry to Captain Smollett being a frog you know like when he finally runs into Benjamina who's Miss Piggy and she's like you know you left me at the altar and he said I have cold feet she said you're a frog you're supposed to have cold feet and then when the pirates and the other sailors are having a fight his sword goes flying out of his hand and he kind of shrugs he goes oh you know like I'm a frog I got slippery hands sort of like that kind of self-referential stuff i like all the self-referential stuff they do in these movies like the rizzo the rat there's all the stuff about him being a rat obviously but then every time 
they reference Gonzo or Jim's like, oh, Jim, you've got family, you've got me, I'm a rat, and you've got Gonzo, who's uh, something. A whatever. <laughs> like, a whatever. And just all of them were like that. Like There were two instances of that where they talk about Rizzo, where they're yeah. like, and, and Gonzo, who's a whatever, and like, Gonzo's like, yeah, and like that's the best way to describe me. Makes me want to watch, uh, is it Muppets from Space or something? The one all about Gonzo and being from space. Yeah. That one's really good. I also liked so much... Samuel Arrow, who's this very stodgy, uptight kind of figure, and how they get him out of the picture by getting to him to inspect the lifeboats on the ship to make sure that they're seaworthy. And uh, that's another really great scene with Tim Curry, of course, because he's the one that facilitates this whole thing where he's like, oh, do you want to leave like your keys and your hat behind so that, you know, should something happen to you, you know, that they don't get lost. And it's this whole ploy so that they can just get the keys, which later comes back at the end of the movie because Long John still has the keys and he's in, he's in the cell in, um, in the lower part of the ship. And anyway, so he's in the, the lower part of the ship and, you know, he touches his pocket and he's reminded that he's got the keys and, you know, he's able to free himself from, you know, facing any retribution for the things that he's done. So, again, rule of three coming back. They do really well with that. Pretty much everything yeah. in the Muppets movie, you know, if it's mentioned in one scene, you're guaranteed that it's going to come back somewhere else. Like, they're very good at the uh, the Chekhov's gun and making sure that everything has relevancy. The other thing about this movie is, like, there's a lot that's going on. Like, I know that I talked about, you know, the parallel story of, like, the rat cruise that's happening. And it really does make it feel like the movie is really busy in terms of, like, overall story. But it really works. Interesting. I kind of wrote down the opposite. I felt a lot of points and, like, oh, there's not much plot actually here at all. But <laughs> it works for me still. Well, I mean, whether or not it's plot action, in terms of, like, what is actually happening on screen, like, there's always, like, a lot happening, whether or not it's moving the story forward. And there's always something that... to look at, for sure, in a yeah. movie. Yeah, like it's always, there's always like a joke for something, yeah. whether or not that's moving forward. And in, in some cases that can feel like too much, but for yeah. whatever reason, they're able to sort of make it feel relatively balanced. I mean, that would be a pretty good segue for me to talk into some of the things that didn't work so well for me. Do you have any sure. other highlights you wanted to mention first? No, we can move on. That's fine. Uh, so for me, I actually was expecting more stuff to happen, I guess. Just because it's based on a book and knowing Christmas Carol coming from that, Christmas Carol did such a good job of sticking to the book and the plot of the book. And like, maybe because I'm more familiar with the story, like I knew what to expect and we were going through all the different ghosts and, and all that. And like, it flowed really nicely like that. Whereas in this, I was a little confused. I'm like, I wonder if there's, is there more in the book they're cutting out? Because it started out and we're like getting all this plot and this backstory and, uh, oh, the pirate died and, uh, killed everyone and no one knows where his ship or his treasure is. Oh, but I've got this map here. Oh, I'm dead. Take it. And then they're hiring the crew and they're going. And then until they actually get to the island at the very end and they're doing all the hijinks on the island, it's just them on a boat and there's not too much else happening apart from lots is happening like like you said like a lot happens on them on the boat like there's all the different hijinks happening and but it, none of it was like forwarding the plot or the motivations of, of like our main characters for me i guess 
and I found myself being entertained by all the songs and the hijinks and things happening, but also kind of wondering if this is based on a book, does anything actually happen in this book? <laughs> or do they just get a treasure map, go to an island and get the treasure? Like, it was very bare bones in that sense. Yeah. I don't necessarily think it didn't work because, like you said, so much is happening. But I did find myself questioning that. I think the major plot point on the ship is, like, Jim and Captain Smollett having a dispute about who should hold on to the map and, like, making sure that nobody else finds out about the map. And then Long John finding out about the map and then creating a scenario so that they could steal it for themselves. But... Yeah, there's a lot of padding in between yeah. all of those it seemed various plot elements. stuff or like, I don't know. I also personally, it's one of my big pet peeves, I guess, in a lot of movies, adventure movies, where it's the point A to point B stuff I generally don't like very much, especially movies where we're like traveling a long distance on a train or a ship or something and we're just kind of waiting for them to get there for things to happen. Like, you're just kind of like, okay, I know all this stuff's going to go down with the treasure when we get there, so can we just get there? Do we have to have 45 minutes of being on a boat? In this, it, it didn't bug me a lot, because there was all the fun stuff happening on the boat. I think, personally, I just have a pet peeve of, like, large chunks of movies involving just travel, where we're just waiting for the travel to be over. Yeah, it maybe would have been nice to, like, find out more about Jim's dad. Like, we know sort of vaguely that he was a first mate and that he died somehow, and, like, he left. I thought it was just going to be Long John, but I guess that doesn't make a lot of sense because <laughs> he would know where his treasure is. But I fully expected at the end to have the whole, like, Luke, I'm your father thing. I don't know why, but, like, just the way they were connecting, I'm like, oh, that's your kid, right? I don't know. There could have been an opportunity for it to be, like, a surrogate parent situation which is definitely yeah. how it was leaning you know he could have convinced jim to join him and like mentored him to become a fearsome pirate or something i guess that's not a very good lesson for kids though yeah <laughs> i mean most of my issues with this movie are small incidental stuff there's like some nitpicky stuff like when uh they're asking jim i think Londra's asking jim like how old were you when your father died and he goes seven and i'm just thinking to myself so like last year five minutes ago like <laughs> how how old are you child i can't judge child ages you're just some like wide-eyed child i think he's seven? supposed to be 11 or 12 <laughs> okay that makes sense i guess i'm just like i can't judge children's ages did you lose your dad five minutes ago then well and i mean the other thing too is like <laughs> a lot of the time kids who play younger kids are usually much older yeah so that's that's true i thought they didn't <laughs> They did give me a great setup for Jim not wanting to join the pirates, because when Jim gets kidnapped and dragged onto shore with the pirates to go find the treasure, and with Tim Curry's whole song and everything, and he basically like offers Jim a chance to join them, and honestly, like he do it. <laughs> How the movie has set this up, like Kermit's pretty negligent. Like he's not a great captain. You've got Fozzie, who's just like out of it. And then basically everyone else is a pirate here. And they're all, like, fun and nice. And, like, Long John is one of the only people in his entire life who's ever treated him with respect and been nice to him. And all he's ever wanted up to this point is to have a family. And now you've got an opportunity to have a family. And, like, I'm just thinking of, like, all those great found family stories that I love where, like, this kid, like, getting the chance to join a bunch of lovable pirates who don't even seem to be very mean, apart from maybe killing that one guy. But that's fine. Apart from that, they're, like, super nice. And they sing fun songs and have a great time. They're like, join the pirates, Jim. Just do it. 
God, what's your allegiance to Kermit for some reason? Yeah, his whole I want song at the beginning of the movie is about wanting to go and, like, have adventure. So, like, yeah. every opportunity he's given to, like, have adventure in this movie, he's like, yeah, no, I'm gonna, like, keep it real safe. And then we never are given any sense that Long John would betray him or backstab him. He's just super yeah. nice to him. So it's like, I don't know why you're fighting this so hard, Jim. This is an easy choice. It's Tim Curry as a pirate. He's super chill and fun. Just do it. But obviously, the plot doesn't want him to. Did you have any other things that didn't work for you? You mentioned earlier that you had a problem with Fozzie Bear, though, that you haven't talked about. Yes. I completely forgot to mention that one. Yeah, so I don't love Fozzie at the best of times, to be honest, because he is so yuck yucky and just like such a like his whole character is that he's a bad comedian and bad comedy sometimes just like just gives me that like ugh, like i just don't like it sometimes so he could be very yuck yucky for me in the best of movies and in here like the whole running gag of him like talking to a man on his thumb and like he was so incompetent and so buffoonish and just, like, the idea that he's, like, closing his eyes and, like, letting the man and his thumb duel with a sword for him. And, like, I don't know. Like, it just kept coming up and kept going on. And I was just, like, it's just dumb. <laughs> like, even as a kid, I don't know if I would have, like, laughed at it a lot. Like, it, it wasn't very funny to me. And it just didn't land, like, a lot of fuzzy things. Yeah, though. that's fair. He wasn't a super big part of the movie, which was fine. Except for the fact that it came up every five Yeah, it minutes. did come up a lot. But it wasn't an integral part no. of the movie, though. No. I mean, I don't know. When they were doing, like, the, the sword fight scene at the end, or towards the end, you know, where Fozzie is, or sorry, where Squire Trelawney is, you know, fighting one of the pirates, and he, like, covers his eyes, but he's not being a hit or anything, and he goes, wow, Mr. Bimble, you're an excellent sword fighter. They're just kind of, like, funny one-offs, but I can... It was also... It was Mr. Bimbo. Yeah. It was a hard B bimbo, which was weird. <laughs> yeah, it was like a weird name choice and just like a weird story element altogether. It was just kind of supposed to... Is that a weird thing from the book, maybe? That like the captain that or the guy who finances their trip talks to himself or something? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. that I'd like it better in that case, maybe. I think for me, the biggest thing that it's always going to unfortunately come up in a lot of movies like this and really take me out and just really stick with me sorely is the whole getting back to it big fat ugly bug faced baby eating O'Brien joke so the joke is that big fat ugly baby face eating O'Brien sounds like some shit grin eating terrible gross looking pirate guy but it's actually this beautiful attractive uh, pirate lady and then in a deep man's voice goes here or whatever yeah. And I can't read it in many other ways than it's just a joke about trans people. Because the whole joke is that it she sounds like a dude, yeah. but looks like a lady. And, like, it just bugs me so much. And then to know that on the commentary, Gonzo replies to the joke, like, what's up with her, with don't ask, don't tell, implying that it has a queer element to it and that it's supposed mm -hmm. to. That joke in this movie just kind of made me go, ugh, again, this... All right, well, where would you put this on our ketchup scale? Perfect as is, could use ketchup or dosage. For me, I I would probably put it perfect as is, but I would be remiss to say that it couldn't use a dab of ketchup. It just needs a dab of ketchup on there to maybe 
get rid of a trans joke or something. And everything else basically works for me. It's pretty close to being perfect as is. Yeah, I would say it's perfect as is as well. That's it for us this episode. Join us again next time when we catch up on Night of the Roxbury and Spring Breakdown. Consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find our show. Your review may land you a shout-out in the future episode. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Movie Catch Up Pod for episode updates and other news.